All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. How can we consistently, faithfully, exegetically parse between coming, meaning 70 AD, and the last and final coming of Christ? Um, For me, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just looking at the context, what's being said in regards to his coming. Is it a local judgment? Or is it a global judgment, right? So if the language like Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, um, if if the language is uh, quick, run, because you might be able to escape it, then that's not the final physical return of Christ. The final physical return of Christ, no one is going to be able to escape. Uh, He has fixed a day, right? So one of the reasons why we believe there's actually a culmination, a finality, an end, a glorious crescendo to human history, and that it doesn't just go on and on and on, is because the Bible talks about a fixed day that God has decreed upon which uh, Jesus will not just judge some men in a local geographic region, one particular generation of men for their particular rejection of the Messiah or other particular sins, uh, but that there is actually a day where he will judge the living and the dead, all men, that all men will be judged on a day, not just progressively at various times, but there's a fixed day in the mind of God according to the, um, the counsels of eternity that's been decreed by God where the Lord Jesus Christ, his anointed one that he has set up on Zion, will judge not just one local area but all men. So when we're looking at texts that talk about the coming of Christ, those are the things that I would look I would look at that text and then I would read, you know, 10 verses before and 10 verses after and see uh, what's, what's the language here. Is the language ever Every eye will see him? Um, is, is the language uh, resurrection from the dead? Um, or is the language, uh, you know, uh, grab a cloak real quick and, and run away? Um, be, you know, because, because that, that's insinuating or implying, uh, Matthew 24 especially, the Olivet Discourse, is making it very clear. This is a local judgment that you could actually escape. Jesus is actually giving... Um, his disciples a, a precursor, a warning, um, not just so that they could spiritually prepare to be judged, but that they could physically escape that judgment. And many of them did. And in terms of, for those of you who may be asking, but, but Jesus didn't come back at that time, right? He said, this generation will not pass away. Some would interpret that. This type of generation, you know, will always have rebellious people or will always have unbelieving people all the way until Jesus uh, returned. No, he, he meant that literal generation. Um, it's a, a generation, the Jewish custom was a 40-year period of time. It was approximately 40 years. I mean, it's in the same discourse as he says, not one stone of this temple will be left standing on, on another. That's precisely what happened. And when he says this generation will not pass, uh, pass away until he comes in judgment, um, that's, you know, you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's judgment language. So think Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 talks about, you know, clouds and billows of smoke. On, on the day of the Lord. And it's right in Joel chapter 2. We know is fulfilled because Peter says it is at Pentecost. So uh, I'll pour out my spirit on all men. Your young men uh, will, will dream dreams Your old or see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. On all flesh I will pour out my spirit. Uh, your daughters, sons and daughters will prophesy. Uh, Peter says in Acts 2 at Pentecost that that was a fulfillment of Joel. But the next thing in Joel 2, if you read on, beyond just God, uh, his promise to pour out his spirit in a unique way on all flesh, Joel chapter 2 continues and talks about there being billows of smoke, uh, clouds, and the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Isaiah uses that language of clouds. It's judgment language. So it's not the clouds of heaven with, with chubby little cherubim playing harps. It's, it's not pretty language. It's actually judgment language. And Josephus, the late great... Um, Jewish historian who was not a Christian, uh, but he interviewed multiple um, Jews who were eyewitnesses of 
AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, and they said that the sun was blotted out. They all had a very similar testimony, eyewitnesses. Uh, the sun was blotted out with all the ash and the smoke of the destruction. And many of them, and I'm not just talking one or two people, but from my reading, um, a, a few dozen individuals not only said we saw the smoke from the destruction that blotted out the sun, made it like blood, you know, red sun, um, but also in the clouds there were silhouettes, shadows that they could see that looked like um, angels and chariots rushing back and forth. And so my position, and many others, I've, I, you know, I didn't come up with it myself, but my position within the, this partial preterist position, that uh, preterist just means past, so that a lot of these uh, verses, not all of them, but a lot of these prophecies have actually been fulfilled, um, Jesus did come. My point is, so when we speak of the end of history, it's best to say not second coming, it's best to say Jesus' final coming. Um, his final coming, his final physical coming, but we do believe within the partial preterist post-millennial framework that Jesus did come a second time. He came spiritually, and he came with angels to judge a local judgment of a particular people, a particular generation, in a particular place for their particular sin. So how do we know, how do we make sure that we don't go full preterist, right? How do, you know, like a, it's a bad analogy, but like simple Simon, right? You, you, you never want to go full retard, right? You, you know, like you, you go half maybe, but you never go full, right? Some of you know the movie I'm referring. I'm, I'm not endorsing the movie. I watched it a long time ago when I was, when I was a bad person. So the, but the point is, right? Preterist, you go preterist, Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump, you're a movie star, right? But you never go full preterist. And so the way I think to avoid that, back up 10 verses, look for 10 verses. What are, what are the other verses around? So Jesus is coming. Great. Can you run away? from him, then, then that's probably something fulfilled. It's a local judgment, 80-70. Um, can you not get away from him no matter what you do because he's judging the whole earth, the living and the dead? There's your sign. That's something that hasn't happened yet. That, that would be my answer. You guys have anything to add? <laughs> the simple Simon, that was a bad why, move. Why are we up here? I don't <laughs> Between Joe Boot's uh, prison discourse uh, last evening and uh, Dale's uh, hyper-preterism, uh, 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 Joel's, uh, I, I, everybody's going to be talking along. Anyways, I had a lot to say about that, but I'm not going to say it now. Uh, because mine was because, bad or because I did good? Oh, that was fine. It, no, it was just fine. covered every That's possible That's the, the best compliment you're going to get out of James White, so <laughs> fine. Let, let, it, let the record state, James White said Joel's ministry and answers about postmillennialism are fine. They're just that's, fine. That's the gold standard. I feel like that's fantastic. Okay. All right. We'll go ahead and move on. So, all right, so here is another question. And this one, I think, is, is a good one. It's anonymous. I understand the cowardice and the reason for it. But uh, the question is, could you have an exegetical argument for post-mill? So far, it's just been all feelings-based reasons. All right, so let's make some exegetical arguments. I'll go last. Who wants to go first? Aren't we out of time? Um... There are none. So you, you seriously, you, you were reading that seriously, that it's all just feelings so far? Oh, oh, okay, all right, well. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, uh, when whoever it was that sent that question in wasn't here, um, I uh, pointed out that uh, my, my journey this direction uh, has been based upon starting at the... Uh, at the top and moving downwards. So in other words, uh, looking at Psalm 2, I looked at the relationship of the Father and the Son and the work of the Son and the enthronement of the Son after the resurrection. Now, I didn't go into the Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint or something, so maybe that's what is wanted uh, if there are some questions about that. But the reality is that what you're, what you're asking about is what is the triune God doing in his creation? And if the triune God in his creation promises the nations to the Son as his inheritance and that he has the power to give the nations to his Son as, as the inheritance, and if uh, the kings and judges are told to kiss the Son lest he be angry with them, 
Um, this is a rulership, and it's a rulership within the context of human activity, judges and kings. It's not just in the spiritual sense. There is an actual application sense that, that is found there. And then you go into Isaiah. You go into Isaiah 42 and, and the last chapters of Isaiah, and you have these pictures that are always spiritualized or they're just simply turned into, yes, uh, after the uh, uh, millennium uh, and uh, a literal battle of Armageddon with Apache helicopters that, you know, are fulfilled in the book of Revelation, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and instead of having a fulfillment of uh, people literally being made worshipers of the one true God uh, and, and Christ's victory being in that sense, uh, you have this other view of the, of, the, of the millennium where you have just a bunch of unbelievers that are just waiting for the end to come along so they can be fooled by Satan and do it all over again. So, um, I'm not sure. I don't think that's emotion. I don't think that. I think that is starting up at the top, and I, I don't want to say that my um, premillennial brothers uh, haven't done this, but I was never challenged in that context to view eschatology first and foremost as something that is consistent with the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their own self-glorification. And for me to see eschatology as, as part of that decree of God and the fulfillment of that decree of God, uh, that's an incredibly uh, satisfying thing and it's an incredibly exegetically sound thing um, to be doing as well. So uh, that's how I would respond to, to the question as it was offered. Yeah, just very quickly, I would say that um, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples asked Jesus, when is he going to restore his kingdom to Israel? And uh, he said, it's none of your business, basically. Um, it's amazing how many people <clears throat> want to spend their time predicting the second coming when the precise thing that Jesus said to people was, no man knows the hour, not even the son. This has been set by the Father's authority, but you go and be my witnesses. The post-millennial position is go and get on with being witnesses. Go and get on with the work of the kingdom of God. God has set a date in terms of his own authority. Um, that's true in Acts 17. And I think the logic of 1 Corinthians 15 uh, about the kingdom, if you start in there in verse uh, 23, each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. This is about the resurrection. Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, which relates to James' point, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. So it's the book of Hebrews. Everything's been placed under his feet. We don't yet see it all in subjection, but we see Jesus because that is a process. And Paul details that process right there in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy is death. Christ will hand over the kingdom to the Father. And the last enemy, when all rule and authority has been abolished, the last enemy to be, to be defeated is death itself. That's the logical trajectory of eschatology in Scripture. Um, and I would spend, you know, people often ask me, you don't talk much about the second coming. Well, or the final coming, this what Joel mentioned earlier, um, because actually that's not supposed to be our primary concern. Our primary concern is being witnesses of the kingdom of God, and let's leave the, the date of his return to the Father's authority exactly where Jesus placed it. Amen. Yeah, you can clap for Joe. Um, I think on that same point on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 25, the question that you should be asking yourself is, uh, if the passage says that he must reign until if he must reign until his enemies are made a footstool, we need to ask the question, is Christ reigning now? So if he's reigning now, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, which uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 
uh, let's see, verse 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Uh, you can find a biblical theological uh, theme of Christ reigning. All authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. And so, if He's reigning now and that there is a kingdom now, you can't have a kingdom without a king and you can't have a king without a kingdom. And so, if you have these realities now, He must reign until His enemies are made His footstool. And so, there is a dominion taking, an over, uh, there, there's an overpowering that's occurring from the power of the Father, th- uh, uh, from the power of Christ through the church by the way of the proclamation of the gospel that He is putting His enemies under His feet through the power of the gospel, the establishment of the kingdom. And so he's reigning now, and he's going to continue to reign until all of those enemies are put under his feet. So that, that's kind of the logic. I know, Dr. White, when you had made the announcement that you came to a postmillennial view, I was in a similar state in, uh, of study. And your video of testimony of kind of breaking down the logic of order of that passage of Scripture was really helpful. We don't need to go over it now, but if you haven't watched Dr. White's video on that, he does a full exegetical breakdown of the order of operations of that passage of Scripture that's very helpful. Yeah, I, the only thing I'll add is just uh, the last enemy is death. So he's reigning until, he's reigning now and for a time, and during that time it's going to be all the way up until something. Uh, and the something is all of his enemies being subjected under his feet. Um, and then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In my understanding, which is, you know, probably what I held to for a while. And then, you know, and then I had the holding pattern of all millennialism. We all, you know, hang our hat there for a little while. Um, but it, for me, I, it was always uh, death was the first enemy that he would defeat. He would return. He would defeat death. And then, you know, uh, usher in a, an earthly, physical, millennial kingdom here on earth uh, where he would conquer his enemies, um, seated from a Davidic throne, being a, a literal earthly throne, reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem, all those kinds of things. But, but we know that upon his return, his, his return, that death would be defeated, that he's going to, to raise uh, those who are already dead. Those who are dead in Christ will be raised first. Then us who are in Christ but still living at that time will also be caught up into the air. Um, and so we, we know these things that the first thing before Jesus' feet even touch the ground, so to speak, um, from Thessalonians talks about this, before his feet even touch down here on earth, the dead are raised. So death is conquered. Um, if you don't think Jesus is subjecting one by one progressively throughout human history in this church age all his other enemies, but you believe that death will be defeated before his feet even touch down to earth upon his return, then you have to say that the first of his enemies to be defeated is death. But 1 Corinthians 15 says the last. So death will be defeated as his last enemy to be defeated upon his final return which implies, it's more than implies, it outright necessitates that all before that happens, so the moment he returns, before his feet even touch the ground, death is defeated. And before death is defeated, all of his other enemies are defeated. So when's he going to get that done? Now, progressively throughout human history, he's getting it done. Gradualism. Um, Yeah. It's the mustard seed that grows, not overnight, but throughout time into a large tree. It's the leaven that works through the whole batch of dough. Um, And that's the kingdom, and that's what Dr. Boot did such a good job. I think part of the problem is we have conflated the church and the kingdom as though they're exactly, precisely synonymous. Um, But that's not what we say. The the lump of dough, that's the world. Or what shall, to what Jesus says, he doesn't say, to what shall I compare the church? He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom? And even like uh, with fishing, he says, it's like a net. And the men, John Gill even says this, right? Late great Baptist. Um, John Gill says that uh, the, the men who are working the net, and, and the implication is that they're throwing the net out again and again and again. It's not just one foul swoop. Again and again and again, throwing out the net into the sea. Jesus says what these things represent. The net is the kingdom, not the church. The sea is the world, not the church. The men who are throwing the net are faithful gospel ministers, not the angels, 
The angels come later and sort the fish. So the angels don't work the net. The angels come at the end of the age to sort the fish. And here's the crazy thing. The fish needs sorting because once all this fishing has been done by gospel ministers, men using the net kingdom in the world, the sea, once it's all done at the end of the age, there's still going to need to be a sorting of fish because there's a lot of bad fish in the net, which is crazy because you would just think we're catching good fish, which th this is, and I'll just say my last little piece here. This is what's so funny to me, right? It, this, is, this is my formula. Okay, and, and correct me if I'm just way off base, but I think it's pretty sound. Nominal Christianity, we don't want that. We don't want it. But nominal Christianity, in terms of who, who pushes, who produces, who um, exasperates and increases nominal Christianity, well, one group of people that I can think of would be false converts, professing Christians, right? Christians in name, in profession, but not actually regenerate. So, so if you don't want nominal Christianity or nominal Christian culture in the world. Well, you need to not have false converts. But how do you not have false converts? Because, because in the parable of the kingdom, this net, the men throwing it, have no say over how many good fish there'll be and how many bad fish there'll be. The angels will sort it out at the end. Another parable, right? One would be enough to, to make the point, but Jesus is merciful and gives us plenty. The same, the wheat and the tares. Well, let's go and, and uproot the tip. No, 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 no. Lest you damage the wheat. Wait till the end of the age. The angels sort the good and the bad. But our job is to be a sower. A sower went out to sow. That's a gospel minister. That's not an angel. That's a man. Somebody's casting a net. And it's not just once. The implication is again and again and again. That's not an angel. That's a man. That's during this gospel age. The more, this is my point, the more you cast the net, the more fish you catch. The more fish you catch, the more bad fish you catch. The more bad fish you catch, the more false converts you have. The more false converts you have, the more nominal Christianity you have. So the only way to tamp down on nominal Christian culture is to stop preaching the gospel. And we won't. And faithful brothers that we love, God bless them, they won't either. They won't either. It's actually, the irony is it's precisely the faithful working of the net and preaching the gospel that produces bad fish or tares, and they produce in many ways, maybe not exclusively, but in many ways, they at least contribute to this nominal Christian culture. So my point is that's inevitable. That's inevitable. Um, and the angels will sort it out at the end of the age. Our job, though, is cast the net, cast the net, cast the net, cast the net. Because, yeah, we're going to get bad fish, and bad fish have bad fruit. But you also get good fish, and we want lots of good fish. But all this happens gradually, progressively, like the mustard seed, like the leaven, like the net throughout time. And it's defeating enemies, not all at once. The overarching theme of the Bible is not sudden and cataclysmic. It is gradual. It's gradual building towards even creation. I believe in six literal days. I'm not a heretic. Evolution as part of secularism, I condemn it a hundred times over. But still, God could have done it one day. God could have done it in one second, but we don't have one day of creation. We have six literal days. Yes and amen. But still six, even in the way God created the, 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 the created order, the cosmos, the world, he did it progressively, gradualistically. He does it as a process. And so too, he is bringing about his kingdom. The same way he made the earth is the way that he is building his kingdom. And in that, it is preposterous for us to think that he could systematically, progressively build his kingdom here on earth and that it wouldn't affect or defeat or subject any of his enemies until all at once at the very end. That, it just, that doesn't make sense. So there's some Bible for you. Okay. All right. We'll go ahead and uh, look at some more text uh, or you, not text, are, but are questions. You, are you speaking today? Uh, yeah, but not for a long time, James. So I have to get some out. Just, just, just not for a long time. If you're, if you're feeling left out or just a little, uh, I guess, I guess a little bit. Uh, that question is preemptively riled me up. Time in or just, just what, what's going on? Okay. Here we go. Many objections. This, this is what uh, Joe did really well yesterday, but, but maybe you can hit it at another angle. Many objections to the, the theonomic perspective stem from concern over the public enforcement of God's law. How do you view the penal aspects of theonomy? We'll start with Joe. If that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Jim. Um, well, the, uh, the, the judicial elements of the law are valid, the principles are valid, and as I think I mentioned when I was talking about God's law, when you look at the uh, history of Europe and the history of, uh, of penology in human society, there's no comparison between the humaneness and the justice of, of biblical law over against pagan law. And then even in Christendom, um, there, were, there needed to be multiple revisions of uh, penal law uh, to get it even close to the, to, to the um, uh, number of death penalties that you actually see as, as potential uh, or at least um, available to the magistrate in the Older Covenant. Now, my view is that uh, the only uh, crime in Scripture, not all sin is crime, some, some sins are crimes, um, that always needs to uh, merit the death penalty is first-degree murder, because in Moses' discussion about that issue says that you cannot have other forms of restitution for first-degree murder. The, the picture of biblical penology is not wooden, uh, and it's quite complex. And if you've not read uh, Dr. Jonathan Burnside's book, God, Justice, and Society, with Oxford University Press, you want to understand this issue, I would strongly encourage you to get that book and read that book um, as he deals with the logic of um, crime and punishment in the Bible, I think, in an exceptional way. Dr. Jonathan Burnside, God, Justice, and Society. Um, but there are, I think that the, the, the penal laws of Scripture, the judicial law, uh, the sentences that people get upset about or the potential penalties that people get uh, worked up about are teaching us values. So law is a, has a pedagogical purpose. It, it's, uh, I will often use the illustration that if, if, the, if the penalty for violating traffic laws in Houston was the death penalty for jaywalking, let's say, um, but rape was uh, a $50 fine, what would that teach you about the value of women? So law is a, is a combination of precept and sanction. If there's no sanction, it's just a piece of advice. So the seriousness of the sanction teaches us something about the value of the precept. So God's law is a teaching device. It's teaching us something. It's teaching us values. And uh, there, there has to be sanctions in order for it to be law. Now, when God says something is just in terms of a, a potential punishment, then surely it's just. I mean, it, this is God's law. It's not, this is not from Moses' hand. This is God's law. And so it's revealed um, by God. It's given to uh, God's people. And so we need to take it seriously. But I do think that there is tremendous flex, judicial flexibility for the magistrate as they address um, the, the sanctions, the penalties that are associated with the law. So we talked yesterday about restitution, corporal punishment, um, capital punishment, uh, exile, um, which is also available to the magistrate in, in uh, biblical Israel. But it took many years, well into the 19th century, before we had reduced the number of death penalties down to anything like the biblical norm. And I would say that even in the United States, um, you could be hung for cattle rustling. Well, that's not biblical. Hanging somebody for stealing a horse. You're in Texas. Unless, Careful. Unless you're... That's true. <laughs> so, biblically, you should be making restitution for those horses. Unless you were out in the desert, somebody stole your horse, and uh, it cost you your life. Well, that would attract the death, the death penalty. But it took centuries to get anything close to uh, the humaneness of biblical law. Um, I've said enough, James. Don't pass it off to me. You did fine. Go. Yeah, that was great. Okay, we, we did this yesterday where I had people stand. This one's kind of one of those questions. It's kind of funny, but I love marriage. It's a good thing, so I'm going to do it. Uh, someone said, Pastor Joel, I have a single friend. I'm trying to help out. Parentheses. He doesn't know it. Close parentheses. Can you ask all the single ladies... Right? He doesn't say ladies, but can you ask all the singles, we'll throw the guys in here too, to please stand up, upvote to help a brother out. Um, all right. If you're single and interested in getting married 
and not one of my daughters, who are five, three, and two years old, uh, go ahead and stand up and look around the room. All right, look around the room. We've got some guys, some single guys, some single girls in the back. Okay, we've got one here too. Oh, nice. All right, thanks, guys. To the men in the room, I'm just saying, I know that I, you guys would disagree with me, but I would have a keen eye for that single lady or two or three that stood up and had a head covering on because it's just, mm, just pristine. The beauty. It's just off the charts. Vesta Sproul, she would be proud. She would be proud. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's do this. Um, oh, okay, so somebody asked, this is a great question. Somebody asked, uh, does, does theonomy and premillennial eschatology, and I'm going to assume, let's just, let's not go the dispute route, let's just say uh, Justin Martyr, historic premillennial um, eschatology. Historic premill and theonomy, do they have to be at odds? Let's, let's start with uh, Joe and James either one to go first. Could you be historic pre-mill and, and love theonomy and work towards that? Is there any exegetical contradiction? Um, I, I, I think that um, historic premillennial people can have a theonomic view of ethics. Absolutely. Uh, I think Francis Schaeffer is um, a good illustration of somebody who certainly had a theonomic logic but was premillennial. Um, and uh, although he sort of officially didn't approve of theocracy, I actually don't think he quite understood the categories that were being dealt with there. But there's a, there's a few times where he says negative things about a theocratic understanding. I think he was referring to an ecclesiocracy. But I think that uh, historic premillennialism, there's nothing specific about it that would prevent you from having a theonomic view of ethics that is a high view of God's law. So I think that um, as, we, uh, as we, we submit ourselves to Scripture and, and seek to recognize the fullness of what God's Word is saying about the purpose of His law, which I can't remember who said it yesterday, but it wasn't me, but the, but the, uh, the, the part of the goal of God's law, I think it might have actually been Martin Silbrady actually during his presentation, but that there's a, there's, a, there's a restorative purpose to God's law. It's about the restoration of God's order. And so actually, the more we are obedient to God's law, the more we're going to see a restoration of God's order, and the more you'd be kind of seeing a, the positive eschatological uh, development um, of a more optimistic view of, uh, of, of history. But I don't think there's a, um, a particular... Uh, reason exegetically why somebody who's historically premillennial could not be theonomic ethically. Dispensational would. I, I, well, I, I could see, yeah, I, I, I would see a dispensational understanding because they would have uh, a division in regards to the Mosaic law and, the, and only having validity at that point. So, so I could see how the dispensational understanding of that um, and I I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure. I've heard a lot of people talk about historical pre-mills. Are they only in museums? Um, because almost every person I've ever run into that said they were premillennial were also quite dispensational. And, and now I think they've learned. They've caught on so they don't say the, the D word out loud. But you ask them just like two or three questions, you're like, oh, you're dispensational. Agreed. This is my only thought on it is I think... Right, a spoon, a, it's a short one. A spoonful of sugar. A spoon, it's just incredibly disrespectful. You guys are guests. Okay, um, but a, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Postmillennialism, I think, is the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine of theonomy go down. And I think, to be fair, even for the postmillennials, I think we need to have some healthy conviction about that. Because sometimes we can, we can kind of shy away. We can give so many disclaimers and say, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we're theonomists, but we're talking, you know, 25,000 years from now that we might obey some of God's law, you know? So, like, but the point is that the post mill can actually use that, I think, as a cop-out, but there is a truth to that, that, um, yeah, it's a lot easier to get people to warm up a bit to God's law when, when you're saying it doesn't have to happen at once. But if your eschatology is historic pre-mill and Jesus could come back next Thursday and you're also a theonomist and saying Jesus is coming back on Thursday and also 
we need to bring back, you know, flogging by Thursday. You see what I think that might be some of the issue. Yeah, there's, there's cohesion between certain doctrines that are more natural. We can see this, you know, the Christian nationalist debate is obviously there's theologically there's a lot of cohesion with the Presbyterian view, and Joel is working to try to make more cohesion exegetically on the Baptist view. And so there's, there's cohesion between certain doctrines that are greater than other doctrines, and I think the premillen- or premillennial theonomic view has less cohesion than the postmillennial theonomic view. So I might understand we've heard Biff from Back to the Future. And now we've had Mary Poppins. Yeah. Is that okay? I just just want to. Yeah. Make so, well, someone I'm said you're you're making feelings-based arguments. Here. You need exegesis. I assume they meant exegesis of Back to the Future, exegesis okay. right. of Mary Poppins. Okay. All right. Done. These are the, This is the exegesis that I do. I'm just trying to um, follow. I'm so. just. I'm from a. Okay. Pre- I'm a, from a preceding generation, so it's just a little hard for me. Well, I'm naming your movies. These are old movies. Well, Mary Poppins was my oh, generation. I, I, that was that was great stuff. All right. Um, to this see is the CGI we used back then. It was, good. It was <laughs> Fant- off the charts. Fantastic. Um, okay, this is a good one. It has to do with taxes. So, I, yeah, I, I like addressing these things. If Ooh. God decides what belongs to Caesar, right? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. But Caesar doesn't get to decide what belongs to Caesar. So, already in the question, good job. Um, God decides what Caesar's. If God decides that, and if submission to tyranny is rebellion against God. If we submit to the tyrant, we're rebelling against God. He's playing off of the, the opposite of that. Um, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Then on what basis should Christians obey um, exhortive tax laws? So if God determines what belongs to Caesar, and if submitting to Caesar's tyranny is disobedience to God, then are Christians in sin by paying exhortive tax requirements? Were the initials FBI anywhere in the <laughs> sender's name there? I, I just... In parentheses, it says, I am not a cop. DOJ, FBI, something like that. I'm just sort of wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it's not, it's not sinful uh, as much as it's more slavery. We're in slavery to... I think it's a cause for us to actually see the pain. I mean, there's a quote, I don't know who said it, is people change when the pain of remaining the same becomes more painful than just changing. And I think that's the dilemma that much of the church is seeing now, is that it's more painful to just stay the same than it is to just change. And I'm looking at us in a variety of aspects in our life. We're seeing the pain of impotent, stagnant, costless Christianity which manifests itself in a variety of ways, including, you know, godless laws and lacks of justice and frustration among wickedness that's pervading culture and uh, society. And there is a requirement of, uh, you know, you said it earlier, Joel, what were you talking to me about before is that there's the, um, when we were sitting here talking about you can obey the law, but you... Talk about that. You were just, that was a good point. May versus must. May versus must. So this is the way, yeah. So Toby Sumter, I thought, had a great answer for this because I asked him one time. He did, he put out this, uh, it was like 50 uh, 50 question catechism for like a basics because we need it right now, Christians. we've We've assumed so much. So like 101 Christian, you know, how does the Christian engage with the, you know, Caesar? Um, how do we think about civil governments? And, uh, and, and he handed like f- familial government, self-government, family, church, and then state government. And I asked him, I said, you know, well, if we're allowed to disobey, if we're allowed to resist unjust laws, uh, then, then and, and if we're saying anything that rivals the tithe, so Caesar's got a, you know, 9% or less, anything that rivals the tithe is tyranny, um, and not just tyranny, but blasphemy, um, that Caesar is saying, I'm God, um, I'm rivaling what God demands. Um, if that's what we believe, then, uh, then we got to stop paying all these taxes. And it was helpful what Toby said. He just said, um, you may pay the taxes, but uh, uh, it is biblically true. It's not that you must pay them. So you actually cannot choose not to and be right with God. You won't be right with Caesar, but you, you'll be right with God. And then he said, 
let me follow this up before all, every, I give counsel that sends everyone to jail. He, the, so, so remember this last part. Then he said, there are a lot of uh, hills that we need to take right now. A lot of hills that we need to take. And, uh, and it would probably be strategically foolish for a bunch of Christians to say, I'm not paying any more than 9% federal, state, tax, all, all of it income tax combined, uh, because you will be in jail. And so he's saying, I'm fighting these things that I can fight without being jailed um, right now. And we'll, you know, we'll come around to that. So in the objective sense, yeah, you could, you could cheat Caesar on some taxes um, because he's, he's being oppressive. He's wrong and God is right. Um, in the practical sense, in terms of strategy, I would like to be able to have this conference next year and you still be able to come and not have to stream to, you know, to a prison. Um, I don't think it's the battle that we should, uh, that we should fight right now. There's, okay, there's here's, battles here's, we can win, ones my, that we here's won't. Here's my question, though. Who is actually making a moral argument? Um, I'm not talking about someone who's hiding out in the woods, uh, you know, uh, avoiding drones and satellites and stuff like that. But who is literally making the argument right now that Scripture is clear enough to define for us what excessive taxation would be so as to make it a moral issue? In other words, uh, I forget which governor it was. I think it was there, was... there was a governor recently that put something out on Twitter saying, we're defending... Um, uh, reproductive uh, health care and uh, all the rest of this kind of stuff. And I wrote a fairly lengthy response to this governor, fundamentally saying, you're going to stand before Christ and be judged for every baby that you're helping to kill, every child you're helping to mutilate, and for your, your, your raping of the English language to use phrases such as reproductive health care. I mean, that makes as much sense as calling carpet bombing interior design. You know, I mean, there, when you attack language like that, it's, it is an abuse of something God has given to us. It's sinful. And so I was just very straightforward in saying this individual, you will be judged by, by God. But who's saying to our legislators and on what basis that when you tax us at 30% of our income, you are now under the prohibition of what God's law has said? How do we make... Is that, one, is that an area that still needs more work before we can be clear about it? Um, but why isn't that something where we're literally saying, hey, we're, we're living in a day where private property is now under attack, and yet everything in God's law assumes that it exists and that it's a proper and good thing. So where's the argument being made? I'm asking an honest question. It should. It should, if it's true, we, it should be something that we are actually pressing upon the consciences of the magistrates that you can't, well, right now, in our own nation, we're just making money up. We don't have the amount of money we owe. We've just decided, you know, and, and that's a violation. When, when, when the government prints another $100 billion dollars, that they're stealing that from you, the value of the work that you have done. They're, they're, they're diminishing your work and what you have done. So that's wrong. But no one makes that argument. No one, why, isn't, why isn't everyone standing up and saying, by doing this, you are hurting all of us, and you are, we, are, we do hear people say, you're stealing from us, but we think of that in the sense that, well, my great-great-grandchildren have to pay this off. They're never going to pay this off, and we all know it. We're, we're, we're creating fiat money that doesn't actually exist in violation of what God's law has said, but no one makes the argument that you should feel guilty that you're doing that. The only reason you're supposed to feel guilty is because you're running up the debt, and obviously, that argument ain't working very well. Completely agree. The, the best way I could think to make the argument would be to come at it from a different direction and just focus on what, what we do agree on. Uh, what is government's purpose? What is it for? Because one way you can get taxes down is get government smaller. And one way you can get government smaller is delineating very clearly what it exists for. Right? So if you can get government out of welfare and get it out of education and get it out of this and get it out, if we could have less government based off of what is, so in scripture, we don't have a verse that says, you know, thus saith the Lord, this percentage. Um, 
But we could say, well, but Scripture is pretty clear about the civil magistrate and what he exists for and what he doesn't exist for. And so if we keep, you know, as prophets, like John the Baptist, is not lawful for you to have her. If, if the church has that prophetic role and keeps telling Caesar not how much he can tax, but, but how much he's allowed to do. You can't do this. You only are called to do that. And if we can prophetically go at it from that angle, Caesar might get smaller. And if Caesar gets smaller, well, here, well, he doesn't a, require as much of a paycheck. Here's a question for Joe since he's, uh, you know, hasn't said anything for about 10 minutes now. Um, you've lived in, you've been to the United States a number of times. You've lived in Canada. You've lived in the United Kingdom. Well, in, in uh, England itself. So you, here you have three nations with a broad and deep Christian background. Why is it that in only 50 years, that once broad Christian consensus has been completely co-opted by the viewpoint of our younger generation that looks to the government as the source of everything? What happened? What happened? What do you think happened? Because I've thought about it a lot, and, and there may have been different sources. I think World War II was huge in England. World War I and World War II, so many people died. I think that had a huge, massive impact that it couldn't have here because we didn't lose that as, nearly as many people. So I've thought about what the effect of, of World Wars was, but still, there was, a, there was a transition point where people went from, when I was, when I was young, it was shameful to take public assistance. I mean, I, I, that's how I was raised. You, you take public assistance and you have failed your family, you haven't provided properly, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, no one, no one even blinks at it. The state has taken the role that God had only 50 or 60 years ago. How did that happen? There was some, the, the, the 19th century, there was a, a real glut of utopian literature um, and people dreaming. There was a kind of a secularization of post-millennialism, basically. Um, and there was this thought that uh, we could, that, you know, with reason and with human cooperation and with uh, our new view of, of, of politics as a contract, that we could um, create uh, a fair and equal society. It really began with the French Revolution, but it was a long process of gradual dechristianization there. And um, the, a lot of the utopian writings, which look back to both Plato and Aristotle, um, thought in terms of statism. I do think World War I and World War II, especially in Europe, with the loss of life, was catastrophic for the family. And uh, there was a book a few years ago by a woman called Mary Abishtat. She wrote uh, How the West Really Lost God. And she showed that there was a, a correlation. We tend to think people stop believing in God, the family collapses. She showed that actually with the decay of the family, people stop believing in God as well. It's a reciprocal relation. And so as um, families were damaged by, severely damaged by two world wars, and, and uh, the, the suffering that people went through, especially in, in parts of Europe, in the UK, I mean, even when uh, my grandparents, after World War II, while Germany was taking all the restraints off its economy, um, uh, my grandparents, who won the war, uh, were still uh, with their ration books lining up for state rations. Winston Churchill was baffled by the fact that when he, at the end of the war, when ran for re-election, he lost, and people voted for the socialists and socialism. So it was a, it was a fairly long process, but I think in the end, it is down to de, de gradual de-Christianization and the becoming welfare-dependent, state-dependent. In Britain, the NHS, it's, a, it's an idol. It's a complete idol. Um, People were out applauding for the NHS on a Wednesday afternoon by almost government decree during the whole COVID thing at about four o'clock in the afternoon every week. And now it, it's an absolute shambles. It's, it's, they're, they're collapsing. The welfare states of Europe are collapsing. The medical system is collapsing. People are furious about it, of course, because they've poured billions of pounds into it, but it doesn't work. So there's this constant demand for cradle to grave, uh, for cradle to grave security. The, the biggest welfare agency in the Bible is the family. 
It's the family that, and the extended family that provides welfare. And so until we get back to a, a biblical vision of the family and a biblical vision of the responsibilities of the church, like, like both, we've heard on both sides here, that uh, for Caesar to get smaller, Christ has to get bigger. So I actually do think that perhaps if God, if God only takes a tenth, it's certainly wrong for the state to take more than that. And the iniquity of taxation is when it's progressive. So in the Bible, it was one basic poll tax, head tax per working male. Now what we do is the more you earn, that your tax rate goes up. So instead of just saying, well, everybody's paying 5%. And don't forget, most of the taxes that you pay and I pay were temporary war measures. So the war time period was critical as well because the wars uh, insisted on new taxes and higher taxes that were temporary. And then they were retained by the state. So, and I think after World War II, especially people thought, well, the state can, uh, you know, it's taking all this money. Why doesn't the state do this? Move into the end of the 19th century, it moved into education. Beginning of the 20th century takes over health. The budget for that is enormous. The family collapses. The collapse of the family costs billions, absolutely billions every year. So that's a roundabout way of saying Family collapses, belief in God collapses, belief in God collapses, family collapses. And there were certainly sociological reasons for that. And there were utopian blueprints for the welfare state uh, that were from intellectuals that were then put into force, especially after World War I and II. So I constantly listen to these guys that are much smarter than me. And I'm thinking again back to the question of what now? Like, what next? I think a lot of you, if you've been old enough to pay a mortgage for some time or pay taxes on your salary, have experienced the injustice of taxation. You're just frustrated. Before I was in ministry, I ran a $10 million company. And I remember paying taxes that would knock you out of your chair and the frustration of it. And I asked myself again the question, what now? What should Christians do? I mean, can you see for a second now how Christianity that stays within the walls of the church is impotent to the culture around us? Can you see that Christianity needs to figure out a way that we have incredible lawyers that come up, that we have incredible politicians, and we need to be engaged in this form of society? The idea of Doug's all of Christ for all of life really range true to me. And so I, I want to raise the next generation of children who can be incredible lawyers. I had a gentleman come up to me just a few minutes ago asking me about if I knew any Christian lawyers. And I said, yes, I do. I have a Twitter list of lawyers that I save uh, whenever I see them because I want to collect these, these individuals for making a move in the kingdom in this direction. Because it's, it's not going to change if we just keep doing the same thing. We actually have to engage this fear beyond the, the four walls of the church. And you guys fought a revolutionary war over stamp duty. That was tax. It was driven by a taxation issue. We still, we're still paying stamp duty. We still pay stamp duty in the UK. I just paid an eye-watering amount of money for when I bought a house in England last year in stamp duty. So we used to feel pretty passionate about the issue of state confiscation um, to the point where you might actually fight with the government over it. Uh, I don't know whether the FBI is in here, but I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that that's <laughs> the rev Revolutionary War. Oh, I can guarantee <laughs> you there is. Oh, yeah. You better so, believe it. He's British, by the way, so we beat them, just so you know. I just, just Washington, all that stuff. Valley Forge. All right, I don't, I don't know what to choose. I feel like we should do one more and then go ahead and call it. But I, uh, you know what, I'll just go with this one. So James, what happened in Munster? <laughs> uh, what happened in Munster was very eschatologically driven, actually. And the rebellion that took place there, headed by the Anabaptists, they were trying to bring the kingdom about by their own... Uh, by their own efforts, and in the process, not only destroyed their own movement, but became absolutely insane. Um, you had, this is what happens when you, when you put together 
uh, radical Anabaptists with the Charismatics. <laughs> and the result was absolutely astonishing. I'm not going to even try to go into it right now, but I'm just simply going to say that the result of that was why Calvin would never, ever even give consideration to someone like myself. He would never, ever listen to what an Anabaptist would have to say. And uh, that was the way it was in Europe. And uh, any of you who have traveled to Europe know if you've gone to Munster, uh, there are three cages, human-sized cages, hanging from uh, the top belfry-type tower of the cathedral in Munster. And for many years, the rotting corpses of the leaders of that rebellion, once it was finally put down, uh, were in those cages. They eventually took them down because people were tired of body parts falling on them when they came out of church. Um, but they put the cages back up. And they've been there since 15, what was that, 37, somewhere around there. And in fact, during World War II, uh, the city was bombed and the cathedral was damaged and one of the cages was knocked down. They repaired the cathedral and put the cage back up, repaired the, the cage too. And only, I think it was 2010, they had a vote in Munster. Shall we keep the cages up? Because you would think it's been almost 500 years. Why have these cages hanging from the cathedral? And they took a vote, and they voted to keep them up there. And they're there to this day. And that was a testimony of Europe. This will never happen again. We will never give to religious zealots um, governmental power. So we have to deal with the reality of what that was. We, we can simply go, hey, these people were completely, they almost knew nothing about the New Testament. They, they, they were completely imbalanced. They were, they were crazy. They were. But for Europe, that remains a testimony saying this is what happens when you let religious people have political power. And we have to, we have to be aware of that. By the way, um, oh, we're past time. Okay. Well, here's what I was going to say. Here was what I was going to say. The first question that you whacked so eloquently upon, brother, and was so, did such a great job. Sarcasm or sacralism? Um, what, 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 are, what are we defining now? I'm, I'm just going to let everybody interpret that as they feel fit. Uh, anyway, um, what, I, what I was going to comment on uh, and you actually quoted from it a couple of times in regards to hyperpreterism. Uh, if, you, if you want to recognize hyperpreterism, go to Acts 17.31. Uh, Acts 17.31, Paul is on Mars Hill. He's at the Areopagus. And if you're familiar with the text, you know it was the, the last part of his sermon. And it's what got him shut down because he makes reference to the resurrection of the dead. And to the, Jew, to the uh, Greek mind, that was foolishness. Salvation was being freed from the physical body, not bringing the physical body back to life. That, that made no sense to them, and so they, they mocked him, and they shut him down and said, ah, we'll, we'll hear from you later on. But here's what he said. He said, you know, God had, had put up with their ignorance, but now God commands men everywhere to repent. And he says, for he has ordained, he has set a day in which he is going to judge the inhabited world by a man whom he has selected and he's given evidence to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, the first thing is, some of you have heard me say this, I was 58 years old before I read that verse right. And what I mean is, as an apologist, you see something about giving evidence in the same context as resurrection, your mind automatically kicks into giving evidence of the resurrection. But that's not what it says. Paul said that the resurrection was evidence of something else, and that was the certainty of the day of judgment. Now, here is the issue. A hyperpreterist will focus upon the term mellow in Greek. Mellow is used many different ways in the New Testament. Mellow, when it's used in the book of Revelation, is almost always saying, 
is always, especially when it's used with a term such as taku or something like that, coming quickly. And so, yes, there are places where it very clearly mellow is being used to refer to something that is not only certain to happen, but it's going to happen quickly. But you need to understand something. Revelation and Acts are not written in the same way. Now, you may be going, but they're both inspired. That's true, but anyone who reads the New Testament can tell a vast difference between 1 John and Acts or Luke. If you, if you want to absolutely destroy a first-year Greek student, if you take first-year Greek, you almost always translate 1 John at the end of first-year Greek. That's just because 1 John is about level two as far as difficulty of vocabulary, syntax, grammar, so on and so forth. So it's nice and, nice and easy. It's baby Greek. If you want to get rid of somebody, have them translate Hebrews or Luke or Acts, which is why I believe Luke wrote Hebrews. I think it was Paul's sermon and Luke wrote it because the grammar and syntax are identical. It's very classical Greek. It's very complex, far more difficult than reading Paul or John or Matthew or something like that. And in Acts 17, mellow is used, but the hyperpreterist will argue, and that means that this judgment that Paul was talking about will take place soon, and they'll literally say that the judgment Paul was talking about at the Areopagus was the judgment of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, just simply contextually, how could anyone in that context have had any understanding of what that would mean, that this judgment is going to take place literally in a matter of years in Jerusalem, but it's of the entire inhabited world, and many of them will never, never even hear about it. The problem is that Mello, in the construction that's used in Acts 17.31, simply means certainty, not soon certainty. And it just seems to me that our full preterist friends want to try to take that one term and say it always means something that's going to happen within a relatively short period of time, certainly not 2,000 years down the road. And so that's a good way to detect it, is when you hear someone um, quoting from those passages and they take the passages from Revelation, which are talking about a soon coming event, and then transfer that into something like Acts 17.31 and say, oh, this means he is about to judge. No, that's not what it's saying at all. That's one, sort of one way to, to be able to detect that. Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, it was a fine answer. It was fine. All right. Let's go ahead and, uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and break. We will, um, so we're, we're stopping a little bit early. We will go ahead and start back up. Uh, Dr. James White will be speaking at 3 p.m. So 3 p.m., let's make our way back in here a little bit before to get ready. All right, thanks. Whoa, 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 you're going to want to hear this. Our next two conferences are coming up quick. We've got first our fall conference. This is November 11th and 12th. That's a full day Saturday and a holdover for the Lord's Day, November 12th. Uh, who's speaking at this conference? Well, we've got Jared Longshore and... Chris Wiley, and yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. What's the title? The title is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, you can't use that title, Joel. That's the title for Chris Wiley's book. Well, I can use it because he's going to be there speaking, and he gave me his permission. We're going to be talking about the household as the basic building block for pushing back the kingdom of darkness in this world. We're going to be talking about biblical patriarchy. We're going to be talking about marriage and patriarchy parenting, how to keep your kids, how to shape and form them like straight arrows, like sharp arrows that do damage to the kingdom of darkness, training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A full day on Saturday, November 11th, and then holding Jared Longshore over for the Lord's Day, November 12th, to preach at my church, Covenant Bible Church, in Central Texas. You can register at the early bird rate, which will not last long, but you can register at the early 
early bird rate today by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. Now, our second conference is our spring conference. This is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title for this conference, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We don't want to revert back to Christendom 1.0, although it would certainly be a whole lot better than the clown world that we're currently living in. But we recognize, despite the phenomenal features of a prior Christendom, there were certain bugs that we'd like to see worked out. So we're not going back. We are pushing forward to Christendom 2.0. We believe that the blueprints are seven doctrines for ruling the world righteously. What are these seven doctrines? Well, it's reformed confessionalism, it's covenant theology, it's biblical patriarchy, it's presuppositionalism and Kuyperianism and general equity theonomy and hopeful eschatology post-millennialism. Who's going to be teaching us on these doctrines? Voldemort, he who must not be named, Pastor Douglas Wilson himself. You also got Mr. Brighthearth, Mr. Kings Hall, Mr. Haunted Cosmos, Pastor Brian Sauvé. And we also have Dr. Joseph Boot, and of course, yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. We'll be doing seven primary lectures, as well as two 90-minute panels with all the speakers together, and we'll likely add a couple more speakers along the way. Again, that's March 1st, second and third, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got the early bird rate going right now, but it will run out quickly. So go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com to register today. Can I be frank with you for just a second right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.